Eleanor Clift is a political reporter, a columnist for The Daily Beast, and a contributor to MSNBC. And Joe Conka is a reporter for The Hill. Today they will discuss the upcoming election, Supreme Court nomination, and the role that news consumption and bipartisanship play in our nation's discourse. Let's listen in. Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, Charlie Dent here, uh, former member of Congress from Pennsylvania. I represented Pennsylvania's 15th congressional district for 14 years in the House. I served uh, 14 years in the Pennsylvania General Assembly as well, serving on the Appropriations Committee and, and also chair of the House Ethics Committee in Washington. I've been very much involved with uh, problem, the Problem Solvers Caucus uh, when I was in the uh, General Assembly. It was a great honor to be part of that group. And it was, uh, I, I was involved with the group, but it was obviously at, a, at an earlier stage of development, uh, but it really did provide a forum uh, for the members at that time uh, to, to engage in a more constructive manner in a bipartisan way. And uh, really pleased to see the leadership of Josh and Tom uh, continue this. They did a terrific job just in the last two weeks uh, with their COVID-19 proposal, uh, which, is a, which is a way out. So really excited about the, what the problem solvers have been doing, what they've been able to accomplish. And I'm particularly glad to be with you here today uh, to introduce our our two uh, our two speakers. Uh, I, I don't know that Eleanor uh, needs whole, a whole lot of an introduction. Um, obviously, she's with the Daily uh, Daily Beast. Um, you know, she has been uh, you know I think a, a, a well-known fixture within uh, the Washington uh, media circles uh, for oh, for for many many years, uh, and has always been at the forefront of many of the the, the leading issues. Uh, of the day. Uh, I don't know Joe Concha as well, but Joe was with us as well uh, from the Hill. And as and I'll tell you this, uh, the Hill newspaper is one of the, the key sources of information for members of Congress and staff. Uh, it's kind of like uh, if you want to get good inside information about what's happening on the Hill, you, you go to the Hill. Uh, it's a terrific organization. Uh, and I just uh, wanted to take time to introduce our two our two speakers uh, today. So uh, with that, I, I thought I'd, I'd stop and uh, uh, perhaps uh, turn back to you, Nancy, to, uh, uh, to, to uh, allow for some introductory remarks from our speakers. Yeah, well, you'll be our moderator today, but why don't we call on Eleanor Cliff first? Sure. Okay, uh, Eleanor. Well, I, 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 I'm a columnist for the Daily Beast, but before that, I was with Newsweek, and I was of that generation that started out as a secretary many decades ago. And I came to Washington covering Jimmy Carter's uh, campaign. And so I've seen a lot of changes over Washington and certainly the bipartisanship. I didn't think it was that great back then, but now it looks like the golden age when you reflect upon it. And uh, with the passing of uh, Justice Ginsburg, um, I uh, sat next to her at a dinner in 2017 and I think um, I was placed next to her because she realized I'd come to Washington covering Carter. And she said to me that uh, it was Jimmy Carter who diversified the judiciary more than any other president. Now he, he, he was a, considered a, a conservative at the time. Uh, he came to Washington and he looked around at the judiciary and he saw basically lots of white men. So he created commissions in all 11 judicious judicial circuits to reach out to uh, recruit women and minorities. And he, he, he found some pretty remarkable people, including uh, RBG, who he appointed to the, the district court here in Washington, DC, 
1980. And um, while I'm on the subject of, of Carter and, and Ginsburg, I want to relate uh, uh, an anecdote about uh, the bipartisanship that did exist back in those days. Carter lost rather dramatically to Ronald Reagan in 1980. It was a landslide. Uh, after the election, uh, Ted Kennedy, Senator Ted Kennedy, called Stu Eisenstadt, who was one of Carter's uh, top aides, and said, uh, would the, would the pres he'd like the president to nominate Stephen Breyer to a federal judgeship. And this is 1980 after the election. And Eisenstadt said, well, maybe you noticed, we just lost the election. And the president's pretty angry because he blames you in part for costing him the election. And also the Republicans just took the Senate. Strom Thurmond is gonna be the new chair of the Judiciary Committee. What makes you think uh, this could even happen. And uh, Breyer had been a, a Kennedy aide, and of course he's Supreme Court Justice today, nominated uh, by Bill Clinton in the 90s. Uh, and uh, Kennedy's response was, you take care of Carter and I'll take care of Strom. And it happened uh, because uh, the word of one Senator to another in those days was also very important. And, um, you know, Joe Biden during the primaries uh, told this story, uh, told another, another similar story, and that is he and Strom Thurmond sort of traded the judgeship of the Judiciary Committee, you know, for, for, for years. And uh, Strom was getting up there, and uh, it was up to Biden to sort of, you know, tell him, okay, now here's the microphone. He, he called it the machine, uh, speak into it, and, and kind of looked after him. And when Strom Thurmond died, uh, his widow, Nancy Thurmond, invited Joe Biden to deliver the obituary, uh, the eulogy. And I thought that was a nice story. And I was telling it in the early primaries uh, uh, last year, I guess it was, or this year. And uh, I, I was told, Eleanor, save that for the general election. You know, primaries are not when you want to be talking about how you reach out to the other side. And Biden did that, of course, talked about how he got the votes of segregationists. Of course, they were Democrats. They were Southern segregationist Democrats. And, you know, you needed the votes and you, and you compromised. And so uh, compromise can still happen. And I would note that the legislation, the continuing resolution that just passed to avoid a government shutdown, uh, the dispute over that was the president wanted um, uh, I don't know whether it was billions or millions in aid, lots of farm aid for the farm states because the farmers have uh, suffered under, under the president's trade policies. Now they've gotten already two big financial handouts. And so the Democrats said no. And Trump said, I will veto it if, uh, okay. And so now they're at loggerheads, you're gonna shut down the government. And I noticed quietly they, they agreed on legislation, a, a, a CR, continuing resolution, which uh, avoided the shutdown. And I wasn't, I said, is the money in there? And I was told, yes, the money's in there, but Nancy also got $8 billion for childhood programs and so forth and so on. That's how Washington is actually supposed to work. And sometimes when you put that under um, too much of a glare, it looks, it looks like uh, the swamp 
and uh, you know activists on both sides uh, don't don't like it. But the truth is, where where a country or a system is founded on 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 compromise. This is a, a bitter period we're in now, obviously, because uh, Democrats uh, uh, are still furious over uh, the made-up rule that uh, that didn't allow Barack Obama to have a Supreme Court appointment uh, almost a year <laughs> uh, before he left office, and uh, now the rule that they made up then. They're not following for their uh, own situation. And so it's a case of raw political power. So there's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, hurt, hurt feelings and, and angry statements on both sides. I have, I have, I have no doubt that uh, the Republicans have the vote and that they will go ahead and confirm uh, RBG's successor. It might be in the lame duck after, after the election, but politics has a way of winding around and doesn't always come out like you think it's like you think it's supposed to or was going to. Uh, and um, the, the uh, 6-3, cementing a 6-3 conservative Supreme Court to me is a little bit like the, the, the dog that chased the car he's been after for almost 50 years. Uh, so it's, it's a remarkable time in our history. So with that, I'd, I'd, you know, I, I'd welcome uh, questions on on any and all all topics before uh before we take questions i thought we would first turn to, to joe for his uh thoughts and comments uh joe the floor is yours um yeah it, it, to touch on what eleanor was was talking about before charlie it, it really makes you wonder if we could ever go back to a time of compromise uh, and i'm not just talking about the trump era but even during the Obama era as well, I don't remember too much bipartisanship in terms of big things getting passed, like Obamacare, uh, for instance. And now, obviously, outside of criminal justice reform, you, you can't really point to too many things during the Trump era uh, that that has passed either. So you wonder if because the middle has be, become something that's defined as squishy, right? And you look at like a John Kasich, and and he didn't perform very well in, in, in 2016. He's now actually endorsing Joe Biden now. I wonder if the loudest voices in the room on the left and the right are the ones that get the most media play on different cable networks. Therefore, they become the powerful voices. And they're the ones that are probably pushing hard for one side and don't even think about or talk about compromise as a result, because that makes them look weak. And I, and I wonder if the media aspect in all this will play a role in terms of compromise perhaps never coming back. And I know this isn't the, the most uplifting uh, first statement that I could have made on this call, but it, it just seems like a reality that we've seen not just for the past four, but the, for the past eight years. Yeah. Well, Joe, thank you for those remarks. And uh, having come out of Washington fairly recently, I, I can tell you there isn't a whole lot of political reward for many of these members uh, to seek consensus and compromise. Their political reward tends to be to tack hard to the base. That's where their political safety is, and that's why they do it. At, at the end of the day. Uh, so with that, I thought maybe if we could, I'd like to go right to your comments and questions. First one on the docket, I think we have Steve Irwin. Steve, are you with us? I am. Thank you, Congressman Dent. Um, Eleanor Clift, it's, it's an honor to have you with us. And, and Joe, uh, thanks for being here from the Hill. Uh, you know, I grew up in relatively uh, simple times when you, you chose Newsweek or, or Time to read, and then maybe you're Local paper, if you're lucky, it was a good one like like mine when I was growing up, the St. Pete Times. But but now we have so many sources of, of news and, and the, the people who are writing the news are not necessarily trained in, in good journalism and and uh, and 
are not necessarily giving us reliable information. I'm interested to know where, where do each of you get your news? I mean, we only have so much time, even with the pandemic. And uh, where would you suggest that we get ours? Great question. Well, I'm, I feel like a relic from the 1950s, but every morning I go out and I retrieve the Washington Post and the New York Times and their wrappers on my front walk. And so, yeah, I, I depend on newspapers and I'm kind of a, a living cliche. I get the New Yorker. <laughs> I probably have a to two tote bags. So um, I, I check a lot of boxes. Uh, in, in the morning, I, I turn on C-SPAN and uh, if the person is interesting, I, I like that. Uh, I don't, I'm not a Fox viewer. I switch between MSNBC and CNN. And in the evenings, I like the news hour. So I'm pretty mainstream and, um, you know, trained at Newsweek. Uh, we had fact checkers, you had editors you had to respond to. And so I grew up in that system. And, and the Daily Beast is pretty rigorous too for an online uh, publication. I, I have, have an editor that I make pitches to, uh, story ideas go on up the line and they're, they're ferreted through. And uh, I'm not going to say which uh, Senate race it was, but I, I got a tip about, um, you know, uh, some perhaps uh, uh, contributions to a candidate that were linked to positions that candidate took. And uh, when I filed it, my, my editor uh, quizzed me and basically uh, made me realize I really couldn't connect all those dots. So they, they don't they don't just buy anything. And uh, but in the world of click journalism, the headlines matter a lot. And <laughs> you got to write. I have to when I write a column, I have to make sure those first three paragraphs are grabbers. You know, you can, I can have as much room for the facts after that. But let's get something that's going to pull people in. So it. It's, it's a different journalism because people are kind of, it's almost like drive-by uh, reading. People, uh, they go for the headline, they go for a little bit, and, you know, they don't, they don't really put in the time to re read everything. So you have to understand that, play to that, but also, you know, deliver your arguments in context. What's missing in so much of today's media is, is, is the context. Um, and, uh, you know, even when I tell the stories about, you know, judges and, um, you know, when, when, when President Obama nominated Merrick Garland, Garland was the chief of the U.S. District Court here, which is the second most powerful court to Supreme Court. It's where Kavanaugh sat before he was elevated to the Supreme Court. It's where Ruth Bader Ginsburg was nominated to. Uh, he consulted with Orrin Hatch, who'd been the former chairman of the Judiciary Committee on Capitol Hill, who basically said to him, if you nominate somebody who's a centrist and who's not 40 years old, you know, we can get this through. Uh, I think Garland at the time was 61. And they didn't even give him a hearing. So that was a, like an awakening. And it, it took Obama until his last year, really, to finally give up on bipartisanship. And uh, his first year in, in getting through Obamacare, uh, he kept thinking those Republican votes were gonna be delivered and they, and they, they weren't. 
uh, I look at the Biden candidacy, you know, Biden is, he's from the old school and he's listening. The polls all say people want us to get along. People want the two parties to work together. He is playing to that and I, and he believes that. And I think he believes that if Trump is defeated, that it's like a circuit breaker and Republicans are gonna be open to working with the other side. Uh, if he's right, man, we're, we're in a much better place. If he's, if he's wrong, uh, then it's full speed ahead with doing whatever they can to get rid of the filibuster because you, you can't go into a new presidency knowing that you're just gonna be stymied from the start. So I think that's where where we are here, and I, you know, I I'd, I'd still like to bet on bipartisanship, but I'm I'm not I'm not so sure um, that I'm right. Uh, Joe, what? Yeah, Joe, what are you looking at? I was just saying, Joe, what are you looking at? What type of media do you get your information from? Oh well, the funny thing is, you know, people say, oh, the media is dead. The media is dead. Uh, look, uh, local news is still a great place to get your news because it doesn't have one thing in it that is hurting our national news so much, and that is opinion. All right, local news is still the same uh, formula, which is, hey, fire happened here. Hey, this person got shot. Uh, hey, this is the team that won the sports game. Uh, here is your weather. And it's, it's very formulaic, but at least you don't have anchors that are injecting their feelings into, into so many stories, which, which is a big problem in every uh, study that I've seen. So local news is good. C-SPAN was mentioned. That's a great place to go. If you want international news, the BBC still does an exceptional job uh, at that. Um, I, I do appear on Fox sometimes. I understand the opinion side is obviously conservative. I still think Brett Baer, at least if you watch one newscast a night, special report, I think if you watch that on a nightly basis, does a fair job. They do have an opinion panel, of course, in you know the last 15 or 20 minutes of the show. But the first 40 minutes feels like I'm watching a Peter Jennings newscast from from you know ABC in the, in the 90s. So that's that's not the worst place uh, in the world uh, to go as far as if you're looking for news. Uh, but boy, Eleanor hit on a great point, and, and that is that we are now in fast food journalism. She called it drive-by, and it's so true because so many people now. It's something like Charlie. Almost half of Americans get their news from social media, from Facebook. And you say, well, Facebook's not a news creator. What are you talking about? No, people just read stuff that their friends share on social media. I know my wife does it. She's a doctor. We're raising two kids. She's not sitting and watching cable news all day. But she'd be like, boy, did you see that story? I'm like, wow, where'd you get that from? She was like, oh, my friend passed it along to me on Facebook or on Twitter. Boy, Eleanor is exactly right in terms of you better come with your fastball in the first first lead, which you should anyway, or the second paragraph, because all people read is literally the headline and the caption, and they move on to the next story thinking they got it, and they miss the nuance and the context of it all. So that's certainly a dangerous thing, that headlines have to be more accurate than ever, because that's basically what people are reading at this point. So um Look, I, by the way, I, and I, I got on here a little bit late. And I apologize. I was kind of like uh, the, the the plan B. Bob Cusack, the editor in chief of the Hill, is supposed to be here, but <laughs> he's either playing tennis or has a massage appointment or something. I, I'm not going to throw on <laughs> a bus. Uh, but yeah, I, I I came on here and it's great. But I want to say that it's so awesome being on here with with Eleanor because when I was at University of Maryland on Sunday mornings when everybody else was hung over, they they put on Sports Center and and I'm putting on the McLaughlin Group and and people are like, what are you watching? I'm like, I find this interesting. I don't know. It's cool. So it's it's great that that I'm I'm here with with Eleanor and, and with you guys and, and and thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, great. Well, thanks for that, Joe. Uh, that's <laughs> that's great. Uh, well, let me uh, let me go to our next uh, person with a question. Stamen Ogilvy, I think, has a question. Stamen. I do. Thank you, Charlie. 
the legislative uh, group in Washington and Congress have ceded lots of power in exchange for almost lifetime uh, employment. And it seems that they have never taken very much interest in the notion of term limits. Term limits may be the way we uh, reach an accommodation on this impasse right now about Supreme Court justices. My wonder, or my question is whether you think uh, term limits are an idea whose time may be coming because you can deal with the legislative and the judicial in one fell swoop and pick up votes that uh, you might not otherwise have been able to get if you were just talking about congressional term limits. Uh, I'm not a fan of term limits. I think we have them for the House and the Senate. They're called elections. Uh, and uh, California actually has had term limits and what they have is like a revolving door. As soon as people get elected, they're got their eye on the next step up. And uh, I, I just don't I, don't, I don't think it solves the problems that we're trying to, to solve. And it, it turns over a lot of power to uh, permanent staff, basically. Uh, now with the Supreme Court, I noticed that the, the Federalist Society, which is the conservative group uh, that sort of vets judges, uh, has suggested uh, term, term limits, which is kind of interesting that, um, because that would, that would lock in the conservative majority uh, and um, that, that doesn't give uh, a lot uh, to the other side uh, to applaud. And uh, basically, you know, what Democrats are talking about. And I think we're a long way from this. First, let's see what happens in the election. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's, there's a potential for a uh, significant win by the Democrats if you uh, look at the polls. There's also a potential for a disputed election that could go to the Supreme Court. So uh, once we see what comes out, and if in fact the Democrats do gain the White House and, and gain the Senate, which they have a potential to do, and if uh, you find uh, the Republicans not being willing to uh, cross the aisle and blocking, invoking the filibuster on legislative matters, I think you could see the Democrats move to eliminate the filibuster on legislative matters. It's been eliminated on, on everything else. And then as far as the court, the court has varied from five to nine over its history. Uh, and uh, you have this sentiment that uh, Democrats hold that they're they're, they've had two seats stolen, so they want two plus plus maybe one to spare. Go from nine to eleven to thirteen. I mean, these are these are wish lists put forward by uh, activists. But there's a, I talked about context earlier. Um, in in a in a country founded on one man one vote, we've come a long way from that. We have, I think, 40 million people is there, who live in California who have two senators. We have each of the Dakotas has two senators, Vermont, Wyoming, Idaho. Uh, you have something like 70% um, of the Senate uh, represents 18% 18, 18 of the population. That may not be the exact figure. That's the one that I remember. But it's a lot of senators represent a small population. It's out of whack. The Electoral College is out of whack. Democrats have to win 
a lot more votes in order to win the electoral college. Hillary won 3 million more popular votes. The uh, analysts say Biden ha will have to win at least 5 million more uh, votes to make up for the advantage that Republicans have in the electoral college. So th th this is not gonna be fixed tomorrow, maybe not in my lifetime, but at some point, the electoral college is gonna have to be reformed and uh, voice, uh, voices are going to have to be given to uh, a, a changing America, a browner and a blacker uh, America. And um, I, you know, the, the Republican Party did their autopsy. I think it was after the 2012 Please. election. Was yes. it after Romney? 2013. Was it was 2013. Correct. Right 2013, after. 2013. Right. Uh, that still holds because the demographic changes are are still happening. So. Um, you know, they're on borrowed time with some of their policies. So this is all going to unfold, not tomorrow, but, you know, over the over the coming years. Yeah. Uh, Joe, uh, Joe, any thoughts on term limits? Uh, yeah, it's the number I like, and since we're sharing numbers, 15 percent of people approve of Congress right now. Fifteen, one five. Yet 90 percent of incumbents get reelected. So everybody hates Congress except for their guy or girl. And it's, it's kind of funny how that works out, right? So once you're in, you're probably going to stay regardless of job performance. Uh, as far as the Electoral College, uh, that's going to take, I, uh, I'm not on the back nine, maybe I'm on the back nine. I'm close to being on the back nine in terms of age. Uh, but you need what, two thirds in the House, two thirds in the Senate, three quarters of state legislators in, in order to uh, put forth a constitutional amendment to change that. I, I just don't see, again, going back to compromise, how we're ever going to get to a point where Republicans particularly uh, approve of that, considering that, uh, let's see, what, Gore won the popular vote and lost the election, and obviously Hillary lost the, won the popular vote, lost the election. So Republicans are going to be on board with that because they'll probably, you know, popular votes are a little harder to come by uh, for them. So uh, th those are my two thoughts on those particular issues. And again, to, to go back to compromise, Eleanor's right. I mean, if Joe Biden wins, there's a very good chance that Democrats capture the Senate. So then they have the House, the Senate, and the presidency, just as President Trump did when he first came into office. And then you're not gonna need a lot of compromise, particularly if the filibuster is gone, because you could just push stuff through. And that's that's gonna be the new reality that we're in, it seems. Yeah, hey, before we go to Maxine Clark, who has a question, I just thought I'd mention and throw it out for food for thought. Rather than term limits, maybe, maybe have age limits on Supreme Court justices. I mean, in my state, for example, you're done at 75. It used to be 70. They just upped it. But uh, I mean, you can make a strong case that maybe you put an age limit on these folks. Um, and uh, that's that's one way to, to move some people through the system. You know, it's okay to retire at the age of 80. That's a great idea. I've yeah, never heard that before. Huh, yeah, I mean, right that. yeah, it works. Uh, <laughs> it, it keeps uh, the, the, the process moving anyway. Uh, let's go to Maxine Clark, who has a question. Thank you. I, maybe there's a question for Eleanor because you've lived through um, several of these Supreme Court nominations. When did, when in your recollection, did it change to be so um, political versus just really good jurists that had maybe had a conservative or a more um, liberal point of perspective, but it, they still got elected by the majority of the people that were voting for them in the in the Senate. When did that? change and was it abortion that that caused it to change is that the the singular issue that drives conservative judges uh well it was it was the nomination of judge bork and uh maybe charlie you could remember what year that was exactly 1987 1987 right and um it was over uh his um 
he he would he would not say that there is a pri a right of privacy implied in the Constitution. I think. Oh, what is my cat crying? Oh, <laughs> winner. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so it was, and it was a very um, it was a, a very vicious fight, and uh, Republicans uh, cite all the animosity beginning there. Uh, but um, and then the fight over Clarence Thomas because that was to fill. Thurgood Marshall's seat. Uh, he's this civil rights giant. And uh, President George H.W. Bush seemed to think, uh, well, we've, we've got somebody black that should be sufficient. Well, his views were diametrically opposite. And then the, the Anita Hill uh, allegations came and you all remember how, uh, how that was handled, not, not very well. Interestingly, uh, Frontline has been running this uh, documentary called The Choice. And it's done, it's really done well. It's not like one hour on Biden and one hour on Trump. They do the early years then of each man and they keep going back and forth. The contrast is quite significant. But I was struck by the fact that after the Anita Hill uh, fiasco and uh, Biden really, uh, his reputation, his leadership took a big hit. What did he do? He recruited two women to serve on the Judiciary Committee, which was all male when they when they grilled Anita Hill. And uh, he, it was Diane Feinstein and uh, Carol Mosley Braun. So that's, again, that's now a number of years ago, but it was a very different Senate. So uh, so the Clarence Thomas uh, thing was 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 very um, uh a bruising uh, battle. And then fast forward to um, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and uh, McConnell made it clear that he was not gonna uh, abide by the filibuster. So now we have uh, Supreme Court judges that are confirmed with 51, 52, 53 uh, votes, uh, which is uh, uh, very different. And that's where we are now where the Republicans, they have, they have the votes. Uh, and I think the Democrats are thinking that if they can delay the vote until after the election, and that should not be that hard because usually it takes an average of, I don't know, 60 or 70 days to confirm a Supreme, you have, you have, you have the, the vetting, you have the, the uh, committee hearing, and you have various uh, time, uh, limits in between when uh, the non-judiciary members get to read all the information and on and on. And if it's after the election, and if in fact um, uh, the president loses and the Democrats get the Senate and they go ahead with this confirmation, uh, the, this, this woman, and we know it will be a she, will have a cloud over her head in, in, for all time and in history. That's not good for Republicans. It's not good for Democrats either. It's not good for the country. So there we are. Right. Joe, anything else to add on that question? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah I think it was RGB, actually, uh, uh, ironically enough, that was confirmed the fastest in the last 30 years, 42 days. And where are we now? We're about 42 days until the election. So uh, right down to the wire. But obviously, uh, that was a very clean uh, confirmation, as was Kagan, uh, 6337, as was Sotomayor. 6831. So there, there were times in post Clarence Thomas where we still had relatively smooth uh, confirmations, all of them involving women, um, ironically enough. I think the problem that we may run into if we don't confirm a justice is that you're going to have 
the year 2000, in terms of all the lawsuits that happened after that election, that's going to look like child's play compared to what we're going to see, considering the mail-in ballot uh, whole issue that may or may not come about, but at least the Trump legal team is certainly going to be uh, filing lawsuit after lawsuit. And if you only have a Supreme Court that's deadlocked at 4-4 and you can't even get it decided at that level, then we're going to have a, a big old mess. So I, I think that that's the argument from the, the Republican side, that you have to get a ninth uh, justice in there, or else you may end up having deadlocks uh, when all these lawsuits come about after the election. They most most definitely will if you see the legal teams that are being ramped up both by the Biden and the Trump team, Charlie. Excellent. Thank you. Hey, just one little editorial note on the abortion issue. I'm, I'm one of the last, I was one of the, I think I was the last pro-choice Republican in the House. <laughs> and, wow. and one thing I noticed with the Democrats over the years, with every Republican nominee to the Supreme Court, the argument has been they're going to overturn Roe v. Wade and erode your civil rights. And I think they said that about abortion anyway on Kennedy, Souter, O'Connor, and John Roberts, and Roe v. Wade still along the land. Now, maybe if they nominate Coney Barrett, well, they, they will endanger uh, Roe, but I just wanted to throw that out there. Uh, let's go to uh, uh, let's go to our next question is coming from uh, uh, Mike Precop. Mike, you there? I am here. Thank you. I want to go back to the area of um, media. Uh, it's I try very hard to be. Um, Nonpartisan. It, it is difficult because we're being fed different sets of facts or people looking at different sets of facts. And those are being um, dramatically um, outsized by social media. Now, I, I watched something which I recommend last night, which is if you haven't seen it, watch The Social Dilemma, which is about social media and its influence and manipulation. Um, I turn from channel to channel. I'll watch MSNBC and CNN and go back to Fox. In, they're, they're in different countries, obviously. We're talking to just in group, two groups of citizens. So I want to, want to recommend uh, an organization called All Sides. And what they do very carefully, nonpartisan, is they gauge uh, most of the popular media. We can do the, the Times or the New Yorker or, or, or whatever it is. And, and whether the left, right, or center, whether the news is and whether your opinion is. And they do a good job. Libraries sub subscribe to this, and you can go online for free. You know, now what you may have read when you were 20 or 30 may have changed its direction, and you don't even know it. You've just been reading the same paper. So, if you want to try and be nonpartisan, there's ways to find out which media, what type of media you're reading. And I just want to recommend it. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. That's awesome. And, and I should know, and it's going to sound so shameless, but uh, most studies show that the Hill is is right in the middle as well in terms of, of its coverage. It's, its reporting is, you know, in, in my media reporting on there is is painfully bland, but we, we try not to inject opinions in there. And then we have our opinion pages where we try to solicit, again, to, to a fault, as many left and right opinions as possible to, to deliver it. And as a result, our traffic has been excellent because we're not really alienating anybody. You know, it's not like, oh, they're a right-leaning publication, they're not left. You go in the middle, there is an audience for that. Believe me, there is an appetite for it to people like you, Mike. As, as a former member, I can attest to that, that the Hill was a pretty good place to go. You, you, you know, if I, I saw their opinion people. They had all types of folks on there, but their news is pretty straight up. Good. Uh, let's, let's go to uh, uh, Martha Conti. Martha. Um, I just had a question, you know, related to all of this. Um, in the digital age, is there room for a discussion of uh, reviving the fairness doctrine? Is that, would that 
solve any of these problems or is it not even an, a, a, a potential solution? Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't see that coming back. I don't, you know, it's, it's sort of like, uh, what about the Equal Rights Amendment? I mean, the feeling is that these issues have been long overtaken. Uh, but you know, I would throw out a question to everybody is, how could there be a left and a right on the coronavirus? I mean, I, I, that puzzles me uh, that Fox spent so much time uh, telling us it was a hoax, uh, selling us that the, you know, the de democratic media is exaggerating it. Uh, and then we have the president in his own words saying on February 7th to Bob Woodward, uh, it's very deadly, it spreads through the air, it's much, much worse than the flu. Uh, and yet, a lot of people go on still believing, including the president. He said just the other night, uh, it affects elderly people with heart problems. It doesn't affect, doesn't affect anybody else. Um, you know, I don't know how the, I, I don't, I don't understand. I really guess I, I put it that way, uh, to me that this is, should not be a, a liberal issue or a conservative issue. I, I'd also put climate change under that headline too. Um, you know, it, it, it's, has to do with the, uh, life of the planet. Um, I don't see how there's a left or a right on that either. So maybe somebody can educate me. Uh, Joe, any thoughts? Uh, I, I think in terms of the climate change argument, there, there are degrees to everything, you know, for lack of a better term. And, and I think that if one side says that we should spend, uh, let's say, go full Green New Deal, and that's, you know, trillions uh, in spending, and therefore that would be obviously uh, a tax increase on probably all levels of income, because how else do you, you pay for something like that? Um, and do we really redo all the things that that deal necessarily lays out. That, that's not for me to really argue about right now. I'm not, I'm not a scientist. I, I, I couldn't say that. But it seems like if you then therefore oppose going that far, then you're called a climate denier. It, in other words, it becomes an absolute argument. You can't just have some sort of, again, that word compromise in between, right? Like, okay, what do we spend on this issue? And if we don't get, say, China and Russia and India involved, who are the main polluters and everything we do really won't make that much of a difference. Again, the adults have left the room and you instead you have one extreme on one side arguing for the full tilt in terms of a green new deal and then the other side just saying no we're, we're not going to do anything at all and again you can't just meet in the middle and just find some solutions here uh where it doesn't become a left or right issue but you do things that are sensible uh as far as coronavirus my wife's an er doctor uh she sees COVID patients uh on, on a regular basis uh it shouldn't be a political thing but unfortunately it's become one because it, it's happening in an election year and uh I, I would think if maybe it happened in another year perhaps it wouldn't be as extreme as it's become but uh again if you could if, if you could politicize a virus like this then anything could be politicized at this point hmm. yeah <laughs> amen <laughs> amen uh hey I, I might just quickly turn to Bill Galston he had a couple comments um before we go to uh uh, I was going to talk to uh, Michael Porter and uh, Catherine Gale, who wanted to uh, talk about ranked choice voting. But, uh, Bill, did you want to give us some color commentary on some of this history? Uh, <laughs> but I'll, I'll just say, you know, I'll just say very briefly that, uh, you know, I, I checked and, uh, you know, I am plenty old enough to, to remember the Clarence Thomas hearings. They were electric. <laughs> but even that nomination uh, had. 11 Democrats 
ending up voting for Clarence Thomas's confirmation. Uh, and so, you know, and even post Bork, you know, the idea of bipartisan support for a Supreme Court nominee, even a very conservative one, and Clarence Thomas has turned out jurisprudentially to be the most conservative Supreme Court justice maybe in 100 years, uh, that didn't stop Democrats from supporting him. So the problem is of newer vintage than that. Uh, and we have to ask ourselves some tough analytical and historical questions uh, about what happened. Uh, I don't profess to understand it, but uh, you know, I'm reasonably sure that if the next nominee, the forthcoming nominee to be announced at 5 p.m. on Saturday is the person most people believe it will be, you know, we're going to have a nuclear war on the abortion issue, and there's no avoiding it. I don't think there's going to be any ducking it. No more starry decisis. <laughs> and uh, because the president has made it clear since 2016 that he will not nominate any judge that doesn't uh, pledge to overturn Roe. And uh, after his last list of 20 names, he included three senators. Uh, Ted Cruz, Tom Cotton, and Joss Hawley. Tom Cotton uh, went on Twitter and said, he immediately tweeted, uh, Roe must go now. And Hawley said he wasn't interested in a Supreme Court seat now because he wanted to be in the Senate to make sure the next nominee pledges to overturn Roe. So it, the, that fight, which was was always a brutal fight, but it always, there was always this fiction that you, uh, would adhere to precedent. I think. I think that fiction is gone now, uh, Bill. I'd be. I. I talk to Bill all the time, <laughs> and uh, greatly admire uh, his his insights and his expertise. Just two quick points on on that, Charlie and and Bill. Um, to answer your question, Bill, as far as like what changed, uh, cable news as you know it now began in earnest in 1996. CNN obviously launched in 1980. Uh, 16 years later, on, in the same year, Fox News and MSNBC came about. And MSNBC actually was a, a, a different network when it first started out. It, it kind of tried to appeal to the left and the right. I, I believe Michael Savage actually had a show on there, and Jesse Ventura did, and Tucker Carlson did. So just to kind of put that in perspective for a moment, right? I, I was on Joe Scarborough's show all the time, but that wasn't the morning show. It was an evening show. It's a lot different than the morning show that you see now. Uh, so I, I think it's become so tribal, right? I, I think CNN and MSNBC offer one point of view. I think Fox News, at least in the opinion side, offers another point of view. But then social media in 2008, that was the match to dry grass that really just made everything explode because it feels like you can't breathe anymore. It's so suffocating that the, the constant tweets and the vitriol, particularly on Twitter, which is a complete, you talk about DC being a swamp, it's a swamp down there. I think that that adds only fuel to the fire where, where you have a lot of people in Congress checking their Twitter feeds to make sure they're getting those likes from retweets when they're throwing that red meat out. And again, if they say anything where they want to compromise with the other side, uh, they're getting what's called ratioed or a lot of negative comments around that. So I think the instant feedback that a lot of politicians and even people in the media get from social media minute by minute doesn't allow us to just sit back, find that context, that nuance that that uh, Eleanor is talking about and, and find ways to make the country better instead of just playing to one side and telling them what they want to hear instead of what they should hear. Charlie. Great answer. Th thank you. Yeah. I think the fairness doctrine is gone. Gone though. It's, it's gone. <laughs> I, don't know how you can do, I don't know how you can do it in this era. Uh, let's uh, go to uh, uh, Michael Porter. And I think Catherine Gale too, they both had questions on uh, ranked choice voting. So uh, Michael, why don't we start with you? Thank you. Um, 
with a little longer term perspective in mind, uh, as, as I mentioned, Michael Porter and Catherine Gell uh, have been very strong advocates of ranked choice voting and single ballot uh, uh, primaries. Uh, do you all have perspectives on that, whether that would over time uh, influence the polarization? That's their view. Uh, I, I'm a fan uh, because it uh, you, you can put your your first choice and then your second choice, and if your first choice doesn't uh, doesn't win, they kind of recalculate, and so I think it gives more people a voice. You know, it's going to be in effect in Maine uh, in the Senate race, and there are actually four candidates in the Senate race: uh, Susan Collins, of course, a Democratic challenger; Sarah Gideon. Then there's a, a woman. Uh, running on a, the, I don't know that she's actually Green Party, but she's running as a Green. And then there's a fourth, uh, a, a gentleman who's very uh, Trumpian, a, a retired real estate agent who, who ran for office in Florida on the reform ticket and now lives uh, in, in Maine. Uh, all four candidates are in the debates and there, there's been one debate and I think there are several more. Uh, and um, the Republicans don't like it because they think it helps the Democrats. And in this particular instance, it might benefit the Democrats because the Green uh, candidate is saying, you know, vote for me, but put put uh, the Democrat as your, your second choice. I mean, she's not saying that outright, but they're signaling it. Whereas uh, Susan Collins isn't going to say, you know, uh, uh, or, or the, the Trumpian figure isn't going to say vote for me and put Susan Collins as a second choice. It, that just doesn't add up. So if if it were if it's a really tight race, uh, some of those green votes uh, could go uh, to Sarah to Sarah Gideon. But you know, I think that's fair because it represents the sentiment in the in in the state or in the district where it's being applied. So I think it's it's in effect in some places and people are generally uh, happy with it. It takes some of the edges off of partisanship, I think, which is what it's supposed to do. I think it's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, uh, Joe, any thoughts on that? What she said. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the, the, only, the only thing I would add. <laughs> Eleanor gets it right. She gets it right. Uh, the uh, uh, I just wanted to mention too. I, I know in Maine the, the the most recent congressional race there, uh, the seat that was held by Bruce Poliquin. I just forgot the name of the Democrat who won. Jared, uh, I'll think of it in a second. But uh, Poliquin, he he had the he won the plurality of the vote in Maine, and then he lost in the ranked choice voting. Uh, it was like a 48, 47, uh, whatever. And then, uh, but the Democrat then leapfrogged them through ranked choice voting. And so that was quite a, that was, a, I think, the first time we really saw it in Congress. And that just happened in 2018 cycle. Uh, so let's go to uh, uh, Tom McInerney. Tom, uh, go, go for it. Hey, Charlie, thanks. And I, I, this is for, I'd be interested in Eleanor, Joe, and Charlie. So, and, and this is based on, uh, eighth grade U.S. history, but I, I still think the founding fathers were brilliant. Uh, and I think the Electoral College, with all the criticism out there, uh, was a brilliant compromise, just like today. Uh, back then, there were three or four very large states and a bunch of small states. And, and, and because I all, I'm also a math statistics guy, but if you look at the Electoral College today, there are 535 votes 
435 out of the 535 are based on the House, which is based on representation. So and that's 81 percent. And then uh, it's where the Senate creates, at least in some view, people's view, an unfairness. But that, but the reason there's two senators for each state, uh, the hundred, is, is so the small states had some more say than their numbers would say. And but if you look at 100 votes divided by 535, it's only 19 percent. So again, I, I would say I think because there's this problem, very large state, and not not wanting today, it'd be five or six. Very large, generally democratic state. You know, and I'm I'm more of a Democrat than Republican. I'm in the middle, but but I, I just think that you know, if you look at 50 states, if you did eliminate the electoral college, then eight or nine or ten states are the only ones who really matter. And you're gonna, you know, the concept of the United States of America. I think it would be 10 states and then 40 that have to go along. So again, there there's a negative electoral college in that, yeah, it does give the benefit to small states. They tend to be more red. But I but I do think it's still overwhelmingly 89, 81%, 19% for representation versus the small states. I, and I think in all this debate about how bad the electoral college is, that, that gets gets missed. It is still, I think one of the smartest compromises ever made. Now, again, we can criticize the founding fathers for who they were, but because it it balanced, I think, as and I, and I haven't heard anybody come up with a better one, where how do you balance, because the very large states and the very small states generally are so different, that, uh, you know, I, I do think the Electoral College does benefit, no question, smaller states, but not by a lot. It's only 19% of the Electoral College vote. So it's still going to generally go with the popular vote winner only if most of those votes come from those four or five states that are that are you know very very blue states. I, I'd just be interested in the three of your comments on that. My feeling is it was a compromise made for the 18th century. It's not for the 21st century. And yeah, but Eleanor, but the issue, but Eleanor, but the issue is the same. The issue is the same. That do we want very large states to have to say have the say in everything? For the president versus a balance of the fifty. So yeah, it's it's 18th century, but the issue is exactly the same. Well, ask the person in California how much they think their their vote is worth. Yeah, but then, then the, but the person, but the person in South Dakota deserves their vote to be heard too. So I, I, I just yeah, I, I just think it's a good balance. I, I think Tom's point is is a good one in that. During an election, then if we just had it come down to Los Angeles and, and Miami and Chicago and New York, then who is ever going to listen to the Iowa farmer again? Who's ever going to listen to that Ohio or Michigan factory worker? Uh, those states would would largely uh, be forgotten. So uh, I'm not talking of, about I'm not talking about eliminating the electoral college, uh, but but I'm just talking about uh, equalizing. And you know, how about a North North California and a South California? That's a possibility. How about giving statehood to DC? That's another possibility. But, but Eleanor, but that, that, that all benefits one. That all benefits one party, and, and I do think that. Well, that's because you know, the issue is very, we are a country of very large states and very small states, and and, and the very small states don't have as much influence on a national election. But I think to give them, it's kind of like affirmative action to give them a little bit of an advantage. And look, I'm. I'm a Democrat, so I'm speaking against the Electoral College, at least today, goes against the party. But in 100 years, it could go the other way. I, I, I just think 
to have this knee jerk because it was decided in the 1700s, it's bad. I, I think it was, you had large states, small states, and how do you make it so it's, it gives the small states at least some feeling that they have some say in presidential politics. Yeah, you know, you know what the you'll, irony you'll, is, by the way, that, that, you know, Tom, you said earlier that, you know, we don't want an election to come down to eight states with the electoral college it comes down to eight states, which is Florida, North Carolina, Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona, throwing Nevada. Uh, and that's why you see uh, it, you know, the president particularly uh, running around the country in, in those states, in those states only. So even though the Electoral College does represent smaller states, those states that I just listed decide the election. Uh, and that's that's a bit of irony. And, and I'm that. certainly not saying Alabama, the Electoral College is perfect, right. but, I, but I do think you have to balance the size of the states. They decide policy in the Senate. That's that's the power they have. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with uh, Tom on this point. Um, I'll tell you, I, I, I think Benjamin Franklin was the one who was credited with the compromise for the Senate. Uh, I always thought that, you know, that the Senate was the price we paid for the Republic <laughs> in order to get these small states to buy in. You know, we had to give them some equal representation in, in one of the chambers. And, and that's why we had it. the Electoral College more complicated. But I've often said about the Electoral College, had the 2000 election happened, but for the Electoral College, we would still be counting votes in this country because it, instead of just being this problem being confined to Florida, uh, you know, the, the hanging chads, you know, we'd be looking at every jurisdiction in the country and we'd probably still be counting. That was always my. So I thought in that sense, the Electoral College saved us uh, from a, a, a real national nightmare. Uh, in terms of voter integrity and because uh, you, you know they're going to say well look what happened in Philadelphia or Madison Wisconsin and you know to find those uh, few thousand votes uh, so that's just my thought let's go to uh, Russell uh, Russell Sternlich uh, you got a question I did uh, thank you nice to be here um, coming back to social media um, I was wondering uh, Joe and Eleanor um, this debate over platform versus publisher uh, where you come out on that um, what is their accountability and in, in what they put forth and, and what we can do about it? What are the remedies? No, I, I think uh, Facebook in particular should acknowledge the fact that it's a publisher. It's not just a neutral platform. Uh, and it's really has, uh, its platform has, uh, is, is, is a toxic stew basically. So, I mean, I think, um, I think some regulation is in order uh, and, uh, it's not going to happen in the current Congress, but it could happen in the next. Uh, so, and I, I don't buy the notion that these companies are uh, conspiring against uh, conservatives. I mean, basically, conservatives have have used these platforms to their to their advantage, and good for them. They figured it out, but so have the Russians. And uh, I think uh, the uh, inability of these platforms to police. Uh, the kind of things that are really detrimental to they are not they're not it's not about freedom and democracy they're, it's they're 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 yelling fire in a crowded theater every day. I agree with Eleanor that there will be some regulation uh, coming sooner probably rather than later. I, I think ultimately what we had uh, was you know Mark Zuckerberg 2003 you know Harvard. He comes up with this idea, and I don't think he ever thought that he would create this monster where you literally have, you know, more than a billion users right now, right? And, and to manage all that content and all the misinformation on there, he would have to hire an army of thousands to make sure that 
that was under control. And that's not what Facebook's supposed to be. It's what I use it for to share pictures of my kid and my dog. I don't have a cat, Eleanor, but yours is very cute. And he <laughs> right, okay. Um, <laughs> he, went, he went back in that room now. Okay. Uh, yeah. And, and same with Twitter. I, I just think these are these are monsters that these companies can't control uh, on their own. And, and some sort of reform is going to have to be done. What that is, uh, I'm not quite sure. I, I guess the question is, you know, the First Amendment applies to government. I'm not sure it does to private companies. So it's such a slippery slope, right? And particularly when they start telling you what is misinformation and what isn't uh, on there. To manage that fairly is impossible. So I, I wish I had a better answer than the rambling one I just gave, but I, I think that's how everybody feels right now. I don't think anybody has a really clear answer of what to do going forward. Um, last night on, on HBO, there was an Alex Gibney documentary. He's a very good documentary yeah, good. filmmaker, all about Russian disinformation. It's very eye-opening how extensive it is, how clever it is, and uh, how influential it is. And obviously they thrive uh, in the on Facebook and many of the dark corners of the internet. Yeah, well, let me, I think we have time for one more question. Nancy will tell me when our time is up, but uh, I think Patricia Chadwick uh, wanted to jump in here and uh, offer a, a comment or a question. Thank you, thank you very much, uh, Charlie. I'm curious, but all three of you might think about um, something that I feel I've observed over the last three terms, so the last 12 years. And it just seems that the legislative branch has somewhat abandoned its role as legislators for whatever reason, because they can't get together because the executive branch won't work with them. And I certainly remember when Ronald Reagan and um, Tip O'Neill, you know, had that wonderful drink at a bar up in Boston and they worked behind the scenes. But it seems to me with their inability to come together in any collaborative way, which is you know what we're all about trying to make happen, that the the executive branch has really um, you know kind of hijacked that vacuum and ends up using executive order as a, an ability to legislate, which we all know is temporal, because the minute another government gets in or the other party gets in, the next president can undo whatever the prior one does, and we get we only we get on a treadmill where. There's no collaboration, therefore no legislation, and therefore this kind of hijacking. Am I being too cynical in my view? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll, I'll start off with that one, Charlie Dent, being the former member of Congress on the call here. Yeah. Uh, I, I tend to agree with you that the, the legislative branch has been subordinated in many respects to the executive, and I would argue to the judiciary. Uh, I didn't support Donald Trump, but I was disturbed when I heard a lot of my friends who were supporting him saying they were voting for him because of the judges. And I said, well, you know, I, that's really not a good reason. It's one thing to subordinate yourself to the executive. It's another thing, that, which is Article 2, now to subordinate yourself to Article 3. And we've seen this subordination, I think, most uh, manifestly in uh, the recent fight over uh, border wall funding, where in my last act in Congress was to uh, passed the military construction appropriations bill. That was my bill. And then the president one day said, we're going to take three and a half billion dollars out of that and use it to pay for a wall uh, without congressional approval, which to me was the ultimate uh, slap in the face to Congress's Article One power of the purse authority. I thought this was egregious, cut and dry. This is unconstitutional. And I was, I was just shocked how so many just rolled over on that one. And if you're going to roll over on your power of the purse authority, you might as well just uh, hang it up. Uh, so I think you're you're on to something here that uh, and Congress's power has been ceded to the executive branch. I would argue probably largely since the Roosevelt administration, we've seen a gradual 
erosion, both by Democratic and Republican presidents, where they have uh, expanded their authorities well beyond what I think they should have in some cases. But uh, I think that's where we are. And I suspect it's only going to get worse because so many members of Congress, uh, particularly those who are the party of the president, feel their job is to support the president and not, not to protect their institution, which is really troubling to me. Um, we don't have a system of separation of power so much, but separation of parties. And I think that's really where we are today. So I'll stop and let Eleanor and Joe uh, finish it off. No, I, I, I agree with everything you said. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't know how the election is going to come out, but obviously, but, uh, you know, if President Trump wins another term, I mean, he has eroded so many of our small d democratic norms and traditions. And uh, for him to say as, as, he says the quiet part out loud that, uh, you know, he's, he, he doesn't believe that mail-in ballots are a legitimate way to decide the election and that we'll go to his court and we'll get away, do away with the mail-in ballots. I mean, it's kind of language that I never thought I would hear from a, from a president. Uh, if Biden wins, he may be naive in thinking that he can work across the aisle, but I, I, I know he will try. I'm positive he will try. Uh, and that will be the real test. And, um, you know, we'll see. We'll see if all those years working together with Mitch McConnell uh, would, would make a difference. I mean, if, if there was a president of Biden. So that, those are the, the, that's the choice. It's, it's not an echo. It's a choice. <laughs> uh, Joe. I, I just like numbers. I looked it up because I'm like, boy, how many executive orders have been passed by recent presidents? Let's see. Reagan, 381. George H.W. Bush, 166. Bill Clinton, 253. George W. Bush, 291. Barack Obama, 276. Donald Trump, not even through four years, 185. So when you have your executive order, I thought it was something and I knew it was a high number, but we're already, you know, we're talking hundreds per per president, right? So, oh yeah, the, the, the usurping of power, I would imagine, would continue because the president is uh, precedent, he meant to say. Already, uh, already was said. Anyway, I think Charlie, I'm just gonna move to Paris. I, I think that's my plan at this point. And that's uh, <laughs> right. nice in September. And there you go. Well, where, did you get, where did you get that information? That was fascinating. Uh, you know what? I, I got the Google machine, and then it just took me to uh, Wikipedia, and then that was the end. Of it. Well, well, the numbers are for, for for presidents who serve two terms. Uh, Trump's number so far is just one term. Yeah, he's on pace for he's, he's not well very good at math, but around 400. Yeah. He's well ahead to set the record. Yeah, going for infinity. Okay, uh, let's. Uh, you know, before we uh, close out, I wanted to thank uh, Eleanor and Joe so much for their insights. It's really great. Two great sages uh, of Washington D.C. and what's happening in our country today. And the final word I'd like to give to our good friend Bill Galston, who also is a great sage, and uh, read his weekly column in the Wall Street Journal. Bill, well. Very quickly, uh, since we're late, uh, I also want to thank you know the speakers who so generously gave of their time and insights. I also want to say uh, that I view the past hour, you know, as a you know as a uh, you know a living testimony to the spirit of bipartisan conversation that No Labels has worked so hard to create. I mean, there have been there were some sharp disagreements on this call, but. They were productive disagreements uh, handled with the right tone and in the right spirit. And I just wish I, I just wish we could franchise conversations of this sort and inject them into the bloodstream of the poli body politic and watch them spread like viruses. 
<laughs> because we need a lot we need a lot more of conversations like this and i think the country would make a lot more progress if we did so thanks you know thanks to everybody who participated and that includes that includes the people who put such sharp and good questions uh, to our guests today both Eleanor Clift and Joe Conca look back wistfully to times of compromise during the Carter and Obama administrations. Conca notes that politicians on the fringes get the most airtime on cable news shows and therefore become the most powerful figures in their parties. And we just heard how more Americans unfortunately live in their own information bubbles. They just read the headlines they want and have their views confirmed by their preferred media and like-minded friends. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been the No Labels Podcast.